Will you take your Bibles to Psalm 50? And on this Sunday, which bridges Thanksgiving and Christmas, I have yet a theme from this psalm that I would like to take up with you. It is a simple theme. It is this. And I'll title this message, Unthankfulness Frustrates Worship. There is a word, you know, unthankfulness. I think it's a little bit plainer in meeting than just ingratitude, but to be unthankful frustrates worship. Really, that's what Psalm 50 is about. Unthankfulness in the sight of God is a serious sin against God. It is a serious sin against God and a huge hindrance to the worship of the heart. Psalm 50 is a liturgy, likely. It is a ceremony. It is a psalm of Asaph, who was a worship leader. So this is very likely a service of worship, which actually was conducted in Israel. In fact, they may have set one group on one side to represent sinners, and the other group on the other side to represent saints, with a choir and a worship team, or at least some soloists in between, to link the two and tie the liturgy or the ceremony together. Now, the purpose of this call to worship in Psalm 50 was to renew the covenant of the people with Almighty God. It was to renew the covenant that God had made with Israel. So, there is first the call to worship in verses 1 to 6. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, and he uses three different names for God. There is the El, the mighty God, the mighty one. There is God, the Yahweh, uh, or, or the El Elyon, I should say. And then there is the Lord, the Yahweh, who is the present one. And notice this, the call to worship says, from the rising of the sun to its going down. The young people have a song they sing at camp from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. It could have been that this was a day-long service of covenant renewal, or it might have been that he is simply saying, this is what he wants from the people of God every day, all day long, from the rising of the sun to the setting or to its going down. Notice in verse 2, the call comes out of Zion. Does it come from heaven? comes out of Zion. God speaks through his people. The perfection of beauty and God will shine forth. The call is if you come, you will see the beauty and the shining forth of the Lord. Then he goes on to say, our God shall come and shall not keep silent. Many of them, having broken the covenant, were wondering why God was silent. God says, come, come together and I will not be silent. He is bringing them together for judgment. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. Now watch. First, God makes the call. And the call is next in verse 4 to the heavens. He shall call to the heavens from above. First, he wants the celestial world to be a witness to the renewal of the covenant and the judgment that God is going to bring on them. And then he says, and to the earth, 
that he may judge his people. So he calls the whole earth to be witnesses in this worship renewal. Then he calls the saints, gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. Fascinating, isn't it? The Lord calls from Zion, and he calls forth the heavens, and he calls forth the earth, and he calls forth the people to come and stand before him for judgment, that in judgment they might renew their covenant with him. The second part of the psalm is the character of worship, beginning in verse 7. For he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, I am your God. Isn't that great? I am God, I am your God. Husbands, try that on your wives. I am husband, I am your husband and yours alone, and look at the electrifying effect that has on a woman. Imagine this, I am God, and I am your God. I will not reprove you for sacrifices. I will not reprove you for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. The Lord says, I'm not rebuking you for making sacrifices. But remember, this, this section is about the character of worship. What is worship about? And he's saying, now, sacrifices are fine. I will not rebuke you. However, verse 9, I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Now, he is saying, I don't have you sacrificing because I need your bulls and your goats. Because the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. If I wanted them, I would just take them. That's not the point of sacrifice. God wants to say worship isn't about God's need. It's about our need. Worship isn't about what God wants from us. It's about our meeting with God so that he can shine on us and pour out his blessing. Which leads him to make the statement in verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. God is saying, I don't ask you to bring all these bulls and goats because I'm just hungry for a sirloin steak. God says, I don't need a sirloin steak. I can live without a sirloin steak. You live without a sirloin steak, Rick? Every day. Every day you do, huh? Every, or every now and then you have one. Every now and then, yeah. I don't need anything from you. I don't need your, your goats. I don't need a leg of lamb to be happy. No, he said. For the world is mine, verse 12, and all its fullness. And he poses a rhetorical question about worship. The, the flesh of bulls you bring, do I eat that? No. The blood of goats you bring, do I drink that? No. Now he gets at the heart of worship in the next verse. The purpose of sacrifices is not to meet God's need. It is to allow you to do what verse 14 says. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's the true character of worship. It is not bringing sacrifices. It is what motivates us in the heart to bring the sacrifices. It's not your tithes. It's what motivates you to pay God your tithes. It's not your offerings. It's what motivates the heart to give your offerings. 
I don't witness in order to become a better Christian. I witness because in my heart, there's a desire to share the faith that God has given me. I don't give in order to meet God's needs. God is not bankrupt. God is not hungry. God is not hurting, needing my solace and comfort. God is God. And he stands on a freestanding throne all by himself over the entire world. Now, there is the point of the song. The true character of worship is to offer to God thanksgiving from the heart and to pay vows to him, to return to him what he has given to us so that we honor him, not because he needs it, but we must honor him because of who he is and who we are. And whenever that is confused, that God is creator and we are creature, we're in serious trouble because it frustrates thanksgiving, which hinders worship. The next section, beginning in verse 16, is the counterfeit of worship. And now the singer says to the other group, the wicked, to those who are outside of the saints, to the wicked, God says, verse 16, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Why do you take my word and preach it while you live the way you do? Good question. You see, it is ill well for worship when we go around talking a great talk while we're violating the covenant. See, verse 17, since you hate instruction and you don't listen to me, you cast my words where, class? Behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him. When you saw an adulterer, you were a partaker with adulterers. And you give your mouth to evil. Your tongues frame deceits. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. Children, I, I want to give you a clue about your parents. Silence is not necessarily approval. Amen, parents? Did you hear that? Silence is not necessarily approval. I remember one time when John and I were having a conversation. He said, aren't you going to answer me? I said, yes, I'm going to answer you. He said, well, why don't you answer me? I said, I'm thinking. <laughs> I want to think before I answer. Silence is not acquiescence. And just because God is silent doesn't mean he approves of what you're doing. And the people of Israel said, oh, God hasn't done anything or said anything. Therefore, we can get away with what we're doing. It's like the college freshman. He leaves the security of home, goes off to school. He sees this girl sleeping around. He sees that guy sleeping around. He sees this one getting drunk. He sees that one on dope. And God doesn't do anything. So the, the college freshman wrongly concludes you can get away with murder. And God says, oh no, oh no. Just because I'm silent for a while doesn't mean I'm not going to judge you. So he has called Israel together and he's called the saints together and he's pointing out their sin and bringing judgment that they might start over again and renew the covenant. He goes on to say this, verse 21, you thought that I was altogether like you. You thought that I was just like you. Terrible mistake. So he said, I will reprove you and I will set these things that you have done in order before your eyes. So he points out the counterfeit of worship 
which is giving to God words while your actions betray you. It is violating the covenant while you're making sacrifices. Ladies and gentlemen, no amount of service running to the church, teaching five Sunday school classes will make up for a, a life which has hands full of deceit and hypocrisy. That is counterfeit. And he comes to the conclusion in verse 23, uh, verse 22, consider this, you who forget God and his covenant, the covenant God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Now tie verse 14 to verse 23. He's back at the heart of worship again. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the, the salvation of God. It is thanksgiving and praise which always promote worship and promote the presence of God and are the heart of worship. It is not the preaching, the act of preaching. It is what the preaching is about. It is not the music, just the expression of artistic talent, which is a testimony to God, but it goes beyond that to the message which gives thanks and praise. Offer thanksgiving, he said in verse 14. And when you do, you pay your vows. I'd like to propose something to you this morning. I'd like to propose that one of the most serious sins against the Lord is not adultery, though that's bad. One of the most serious sins against the Lord is not gossiping, though gossiping is very bad because it is so difficult to take back your words once they've flown from your mouth. Amen? It is not stealing, though stealing is bad because it violates something very important. That God has given us dominion and stewardship and it's in our care and we're accountable for it. And if you take it from me, you've really robbed God. But I tell you a sin that many of us are guilty of and hardly ever confess. And that's the sin of unthankfulness. Can I prove that to you? Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Now in Romans 1, Paul is clear. You know, it, this is the condemnation section of Romans. He's laying down the condemnation of man so that he can now give the purpose for the justification which comes beginning in chapter 3. But in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Even a man who's never heard the name of Christ has something of God manifest in him. What is it? God has shown something to him, verse 19 says. Now verse 20 tells you what it is. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that all the pagan world and all the heathen world who saw creation and through creation saw the invisible attributes of God are without any excuse. They cannot come before God and say, I never knew who you were. Now why? Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they saw him in creation, 
Watch this. One, they did not glorify him as God. Two, nor were they thankful. Three, they became foolish and futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They thought they were wise. They became fools. And when you're unthankful, you flip the relationship. You change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So you wind up worshiping in verse, uh, in verse 25. You wind up worshiping and serving the creature instead of the creator. Now that's the passage that tells us that idolatry is the result of rejecting God. It is not man on his way to God. It is man on his way away from God. He's rejected what he knew of God in nature. Isn't that interesting? So therefore, verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them over to a debased mind. Ladies and gentlemen, the beginning of God giving us up is an unthankful heart which puts us, the creature, at the center of the relationship and the center of the universe rather than God who is the creator. You say, well, I didn't know one sin was worse than another. I thought all sins were like. I think that's one of the greatest myths in modern Christianity is that all sin is the same. If you believe that, I think you need to go back and re-examine the Bible. There are degrees of punishment and there are degrees of sin. That's a problem that we need to address and we need to solve. How do I know that? Let me take you through two, two or three passages here. Turn to James chapter 2 and note first of all the passage which is usually, usually cited to indicate that there is no difference in sin. And here it is in James chapter 2. He said, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Now folks, because God's nature and God's holiness and God's character is represented by all the law. Because you break one part of the law, you've broken all the law and are guilty before God. But don't assume that breaking one part of the law is the same as breaking another. Now, follow me to John chapter 19, verse 11. I'll show you why that's true. John... 1911. Do you recall when Jesus was brought before Pilate in verse 10? Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Come on, Jesus, say something. Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered to me, me to you has what class? What are the words? Say the words. The greater sin. All sin breaks the law of God. But sin 
has varying consequences. Hear me now. And I'm telling you there's something about ingratitude and an unthankful heart which flips the relationship and turns us from God so that God gives us up. I take gratitude extremely seriously. I take thankfulness very seriously because I'm of a biblical mindset that to be unthankful is a serious offense against the holy God who will not allow us to be served and worshipped. Hear me. There is one more scripture to remind you of, and that is in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 21. Jesus said in verse 20 that he would, wanted to upbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because he saw, they saw these miracles but did not repent. Verse 21, woe to you, Chorazin, that's a town, Woe to you, Bethsaida. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable. Get that, underline that. More tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day, and I would not have brought judgment. Now, that's a problem that I want you to resolve in your mind. One sin violates the whole nature of God, but all sin is not the same. It is the same in the sense of violation, but not in the same, the same in the sense of responsibility or weight. Now, if that's a problem for you, I want you to go home and think about it and solve it. If that's a conundrum, make it an addendum to your theology. I love to solve problems. I think I'm a fairly good problem solver. In fact, that's what I spend about half my time doing is solving problems. I remember I was in Chile, the land of uh, Francis and Bonnie Smith. And uh, I had lost a button off my coat jacket. Actually, there were four buttons on this coat. I used to think that four buttons meant an expensive suit and three buttons meant a cheap suit. And then I bought one of those $100 specials over at um, S&K, and it had four buttons. And I realized they could make a cheap suit look like an expensive suit by just sewing another button on it. Amen? How many of you ever thought four buttons meant a more expensive suit? See there? You were in the same boat I was. So I took the coat to the tailor and said, I lost a button. He said, fine, I'll take care of that. The next day, he'd had it for 24 hours. The next day, I arrived and wanted my coat. He said, it'll be a quarter. It was a quarter in Chilean money. And so I got my coat, and I put it on, and I wore it, and I was later in the day somewhere when suddenly I realized my coat had been fixed, but guess what he had done? How had he solved the problem? He took the fourth button off the other side. Now they both had three, and the problem is solved. I don't know what he did with the button, but he charged me a quarter to take it off. I could have done that. <laughs> I drove down to Mox the other day. I needed new tires. Everybody was telling me, you need new tires. 
I said, you know, I've had black walls for several tires. I believe I'll try some white walls again. And so I bought some nice white wall tires. And my son, John, looked at those and he said, Dad, those are only for old people. <laughs> so I went back the next morning and I said, you know, I don't think I like these white walls quite as well as I thought I was. I said, you told me that I wasn't going to like white walls and you're right. Now, do you have a trade-in plan? I said, I haven't driven any place but the church twice and Harris Tita once. What can you do for me? He laughed. He said, well, because you admitted it was your mistake, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll fix them for you and won't charge anything. And when I came back to pick up my car, do you know what he'd done? He just turned those white walls around on the inside. Now I have black walls. <laughs> Solving problems. Solving problems. For a long time, I labored under a difficult problem, and it created a difficulty for me in my mind. Is adultery a worse sin than homosexuality? Is stealing worse than murder? Is coveting worse than lying? I believe there are greater sins, but the greatest of sin is being unthankful. Can I give you just three things that thankfulness does and why that is true? The first is thankfulness pays a debt. So the psalmist says in Psalm 50 verse 14, offer thanksgiving to God and pay your vows to the Lord. I think this aspect of thanksgiving refers to the holiness of God. God is a holy God. Sin is a debt to him. And we pay back God for his goodness, not because he needs it, but out of gratitude. That's what Matthew 5, 16 is about. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And your good works will do what, class? Earn your salvation? No, they glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Thankfulness pays back a debt. Thankfulness pays back to God when we have robbed him of the holiness that is due him. When we sin, we, instead of reflecting his holiness, we reflect something else and it is a testimony against God. Therefore, we're in debt to him because we have offended him by reflecting not his holiness, but reflecting sin where he gave us an opportunity. Thankfulness always pays a debt. You and I cannot repay God. There was a man in France by the name of André François uh, Joffre. Joffre was his name. In France, they have a way of uh, helping senior citizens get the equity out of their house. You buy a house from a senior citizen, and then you gamble and he gambles. You pay him so much a month for the rest of his life as long as he lives. He gets the cash now, and when you die, he, he gets the cash now. And when he dies, the house belongs to the one who's made the contract. There was a 47-year-old man, Mr. Jaffray, who made a contract with a 90-year-old woman whose name was Clement. 30 years later, he had paid $500 a month. He'd paid $184,000 to her. 
and he died at age 77. And she was the world's oldest woman two years ago at 120, still living. (laughs) Man, that would happen to me if I were to gamble like that. She outlived him. He thought, well, there's no way this 90-year-old gal can outlive me. And he paid her 184,000 and she was still living. And he died at 77 and got absolutely nothing for his $184,000. You know, sometimes that's the way I feel about God. Have you ever done a balance sheet on what the Lord has given you? Have you ever done a balance sheet on the covenant God made with you? I'll take care of you, Mark. Just just pay your debt back to me of thanksgiving. And look at what we have received from the Lord. Can I live long enough? God gets cheated every day when we die before we've given him back anything like what he gave to us. First, thanksgiving is important because it pays a debt to God. Unthankfulness is a serious sin because you fall short of giving back to the Lord. Secondly, thankfulness returns God's glory. Thankfulness returns God's glory. Now, this aspect of thankfulness has to do with the glory of God. Unthankfulness robs God of his glory, but thankfulness returns it to him. It's a way of of shining light back on God, reflecting from the glory that he shined on us. Friday was a busy day for my bride. We started our 38th year of marriage Friday and uh, just be, I almost wore my wedding suit this morning. I almost put it back on just to show you I could still wear it. I've got it. It was 1995, Richmond Brothers, in 1959. I can still wear it. It's a little shiny on the bottom side, but it's, it's still, I had it clean. Looks pretty good. I'm going to wear it one of these days. She begged me not to, but uh, it's back in style now. It's one of those three buttons where you button the top two buttons. It's all back in style. You know, what goes around comes around. I got a whole batch of those narrow ties. I'm just saving. They'll be back. Give them a couple years. They'll be back. Right? But anyway, um, she was having a busy day doing the things she had to do, taking care of family and trying to help with her dad. And I thought now it was morning. And I've made pretty good progress on what I call stage two on my message. I thought, what can I do for her? What can I do to make her look good? How can I shine something back on her? So we had agreed that uh, I've, I've got some grandchildren who are strange. They love salads and they'll eat salads better than they'll eat meat and potatoes or cheese and peas. I, I don't mean cheese and peas together. I mean separately, but you know, uh, so we decided we would have a turkey and ham salad. We had lots of leftover ham, got lots of leftover. In fact, if you don't know where to go to eat, come, I can tell you we can get some ham and turkey. About noon today, about 12.30 today, about one o'clock today, I can tell you we can get some. So I got out the cheese and the ham and the turkey that I knew she would have to take time to make for a salad, and I cut it all up in strips for her just piles and strips, and then I bagged it for her, and then I, 
I thought, now what else can I do for this salad to get everything ready so that tonight she can do it quickly? And when she came in and saw that I had done that on my own, no notes, no prompting, I had chosen to do it. It was a free will voluntary glory offering. You won't believe what she did. She put her arms around my neck. She, she was busy. I could tell she was running everywhere. But she stopped to take time just for me and hugged me and planted one right here. And I thought, oh, I'll go back and do that again. You see what I did? I had returned something to her. Do you not know that while God is not altogether like us, we are something like him. And do you not know that when you give glory back to him to shine light on him, to make him look good as it were, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, that God is pleased and he loves to reciprocate with his favor upon you. Thankfulness does that. Psalm 96, 8 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Isaiah 42, 8 says, God will not give his glory to another. That's why thankfulness is so important. And Isaiah 58, 8 says that the glory of the Lord is my rear guard. I like that. <laughs> the glory of the Lord, when I give it back to him, he reciprocates by protecting the rear flank. And the glory of the Lord is your rear guard. That is why Thanksgiving is so important in worship. Not just once a year. The third thing, and then we close, thankfulness yields to his will. Thankfulness yields to his will. This has to do with God's sovereignty. His sovereignty. Because thankfulness is a way of saying, Lord, I yield to whatever you have for me. Listen to me, folks. If there's one thing I've learned in uh, 45 years of the, 46 years of the Christian life, I've learned to thank God for the difficulties. They're not all chastening. All problems and difficulties are not just God's punish, uh, uh, God's, uh, God's instructive punishment. They're not just chastening. We're told to thank God for everything. Not every obedient act is showered with blessing. There are times when I sought the will of God. I thought it was the right thing to do and I fell on my face or the project absolutely flopped and I'd prayed about it and I'd waited on God and there was a time in my primitive Christianity when I thought every act of obedience had a, an equal and reciprocating act of blessing from God. But I have come to believe that there are times we must thank God for the tough things and they're not even designed to teach us anything. They are simply designed to make us serve him. And he uses it to bless somebody else's life or to accomplish something over here. That is why we thank God for everything. I used to think one crack was one whack. One sin brought one retaliatory strike from God. One, every act of obedience brought a retaliatory blessing from God. I am telling you, I have had to sometimes wait a long time on my blessings while I was thanking him.
And sometimes I think God just puts us down so we can serve him. That's why you can thank him even when you don't like it. This faith that we have is based on an idea of sacrifice. And sometimes we, get, we have to thank God for the tough things because God's going to use them in somebody else's life. It has nothing to do with you. After all, Jesus suffered and his suffering had nothing to do with himself. Nothing to do with himself. Here's a businessman. He prays, he seeks the guidance of God, he makes a decision, and something bad comes out of it. Not always, sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. But when it does, what I'm saying is for a Christian, God is sovereign. And if, he, if you prayed and you thought you had his mind and his will on, on a matter and you did it, you took an act of obedience and it doesn't work out to have immediate gratification, that's all right. Keep on thanking God because someday you'll see that that was the way you served him. He needs to remind us once in a while that he's the master and we're the servant. Failure or adversity doesn't just mean we missed God's will. Sometimes it means God is exercising his sovereign option to call us and use us just as he wants. And that's why we thank God for anything and we thank God for everything. One last verse, 2 Chronicles. Turn back to 2 Chronicles. Can I show you just a little gem that came out of my devotional reading the other day that Help me to understand this. In chapter 31 of 2 Chronicles, verse 2, Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites according to their divisions, each man according to his service, the priests and Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now underline the three reasons why they brought offerings. Number one, to serve. Number two, to give thanks. And number three, to give praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. There you have it. Service and thanksgiving, sacrifice and thanksgiving, service and sacrifice are linked to praise throughout Old Testament worship from the beginning to the end. And sometimes I thank God not because he showered limitless blessings down upon me, but because he's sovereign and I'm his servant and I thank him that I can suffer and be used of him just to serve him and to let him accomplish something in somebody else's life. Gives a whole new meaning to thanks. And a whole new dimension to worship. To see that God is at work in my life. If I sin, he'll judge me, chasten me. If I fail, it may not mean I've failed. It may be a temporary failure. He's called me to serve him in this. So I'll give thanks for everything because without thanks sacrifice is worthless make your sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord and pay your vows to him would you stand with me in prayer our father we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross to die for our sin today bring us to the place of praise of thanksgiving Lord, we want to please you. We want to reflect your goodness back to you. We want to work in harmony with your holiness and with your sovereignty. 
So teach us how to thank you for everything. And if there's anybody here, blessed Lord, who's never been saved, who doesn't understand Christ's sacrifice at the cross for them, help them to come and to give their lives in response to his sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.